Good morning. Can you hear me well? Okay. Oh, well, except for a French accent, right? Okay. Thanks. Today I have the pleasure to introduce you to the new speaker for the Exploring Economic Freedom lecture series. Our new speaker is Professor Carol Boudreau. Professor Boudreau earned a JD from the University of Virginia. She's currently a senior research fellow at the Mercator Center at George Mason University, and she's the lead researcher for Enterprise Africa, which is a research project investigating, analyzing, and reporting on enterprise-based solutions to poverty in Africa. She was also a member of a working group on property rights of a commission on the legal empowerment of the poor in the United Nations Development Program. Currently, Professor Boudreau is also a board member of the Association for Private Enterprise Education and a board member of Indigo Africa, which is a small non-governmental organization that promotes women entrepreneurs in Rwanda. She's also currently a faculty member of the George Mason University Law School and she was previously the assistant dean and director of a Juris Master Degree Program. A topic for today will be entrepreneurship and poverty alleviation, empowering people and improving communities in Africa. Please welcome Professor Boudreau. This is great. I expected maybe like three or four people would come, but a room full of folks is, is, oh, and there are people in the balcony. Wow. This is great. Thank you all very much for leaving the beautiful weather outside and coming in to join us today. Um, I am going to speak with you about uh, some of the work that I've been doing over the past five years in Africa, looking at ways in which um, enterprise-based solutions to poverty are providing some solutions to problems on the ground. Um, and what I'm going to be doing, actually, is presenting a, a fairly new idea that I have, and we'll see how it flies with you. Um, and so uh, what I'm going to suggest, actually, is that we, we wait for questions until the end, because I'm such a typical academic. If you start asking me questions, I'll get sidetracked, and we'll be on tangents, and we'll never get to the end of the talk. So um, if you don't mind... Uh, maybe we can hold questions till the end, and then we'll have, I'll try to leave about 25 minutes for questions. Okay, so, um, you know, people are still very, people are, are understandably very concerned about the problems of poverty around the world. And we, when we think about problems of poverty, um, for many Americans, the first thing we think about is the problem of poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. And, and it's a bit of a puzzle for us, right? We wonder, why is this continent, or this particular portion of the continent, why is this continent still so poor, despite the tremendous economic growth that other parts of the world have experienced, especially over the last 20 to 30 years? Um, in a way, the question about why Africa is poor is simply a new iteration of a question that Adam Smith was asking in his book, The Wealth of Nations, when he published that 234 years ago. Why are some nations wealthy when other nations are poor? He was thinking about that in the context of the Industrial Revolution in terms of Great Britain, looking at what had happened in Great Britain and trying to understand, wow, why is Great Britain really experiencing some phenomenal social changes when other European countries aren't really experiencing the same level of change? Today we think about the question of the developing world. Why is the developed world experienced? Why has it experienced the kind of economic growth it's experienced? which in turn leads to outcomes that, that help us to lead better and more flourishing lives. Why do we live that way, and why do people in other parts of the world live very differently? Why do they have a very different experience in their day-to-day -day lives? Um, economists have been puzzling over the developing world for about 60 years now, and, and they've come up with a whole series of theories to explain why it is that places like South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa are poor, and some of these theories I have up on my slide, they're, they're things like, well, maybe they're poor because there's not enough, there's not enough money generated within the society uh, to fund um, investment opportunities. And so maybe there's a finance gap. Maybe there's just not enough financing within the society to build industries, to grow economies that would lead to a more prosperous society. 
Or maybe another problem is that people are simply too poor to save. A finance gap theory and a poverty trap theory would be related. Um, many people, Jeffrey Sachs included, would say one of the real reasons why there's so much poverty in sub-Saharan Africa is that the poor cannot put money aside because they cannot put money aside to save. They really can never invest in businesses themselves. It's very difficult for them to become entrepreneurs. Um, because they don't become entrepreneurs, a lot of re revenue isn't generated within the country. No revenue means that the government can't collect taxes. Government can't collect taxes, and you've got this circle where the government can't provide services to local people, and so you've got a lot of poverty. And the way to break that trap is to inject money from the outside world into the society in order to really spark economic growth. Um, other theories have included things like import substitution, which is a, th a theory that says really what the developing world needs to do is stop importing stuff from the developed world and create manufacturing um, opportunities within the country to service the local economy. Some pro one problem with that theory is that economies, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, some of them anyway, tend to be very small economies, and so um, there's not a lot of people within the, co the economy, and so you may not be able to efficiently and effectively create a manufacturing sector for everything that people within that society need. More recently, economists have looked at the role that institutions play in promoting prosperity or in hindering economic growth in countries. What does this mean? This means that it's really important for us to think about whether a country has an effective, efficient, operating rule of law, for example. Institutions are something that often, at least until the recent past, economists have often taken for granted. We, we assume that there will be a system of good institutions, and then economists in the past were trying to, trying to figure out, well, why isn't there growth if we're assuming that these good institutions exist? It's a little bit of a puzzle. Maybe these other things help explain it. In fact, in a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, and, and pretty much everything I say is really focused on that area, there are not good institutions. There are institutions that are dysfunctional. There are institutions that have been hijacked or co-opted by people who are elites within the society. So the work, for example, that Douglas North has done looking at the history of institutional development and how, and how that explains the rise of the West and how that helps us to understand why Europe became wealthier and countries that adopted European institutions tended to become wealthier. Um, that's an important component of understanding why is Africa poor today. There's, there's certainly an institutional story to be told. Um, more recently, especially in the major, the major development organizations, places like the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, there's been, um, in addition, a focus on doing business, making it easier for folks within countries to do business, recognizing that institutions may be dysfunctional. They may be creating barriers for people on the ground to build businesses and grow businesses. Once we recognize that, there can be an on-the-ground effort to make it easier for folks to do business by changing regulations, removing barriers, reducing the number of steps it can take to open a business, making it easier to um, close a business. It's just as important to be able to close a business easily as it is to be able to open a business. But in all of these various theories about why countries are poor, why they, or why they're not, why they're wealthy, the role of the entrepreneur is maybe implicit but hasn't really been explicit. But if you think about it, the people who are building businesses, the people who are growing businesses, the people who are creating jobs are almost always private sector entrepreneurs. It's absolutely true that governments create jobs and, and they employ lots of people. In sub-Saharan Africa, governments employ lots of people. They're very, very big governments and big bureaucracies. But the explicit role that entrepreneurs play in terms of promoting economic growth in the developing world is not something that's really been center stage in this debate. And so what I'm going to talk about today is some of the experiences I've had working in Africa and working with a variety of entrepreneurs. And the argument I'm going to make is that you need at least three kinds of entrepreneurs currently today in Africa in order to really promote strong, sustainable economic development. And part of the reason we don't see as much development as we'd like is because one group or more of these entrepreneurs is missing in any given country. So let me tell you what the three groups are as far as I see them. Number one, there are traditional entrepreneurs. 
Um, no doubt a number of you in the room are entrepreneurs yourself, or your parents are entrepreneurs, or you have family members who are entrepreneurs. And you know that when you're an entrepreneur, what you're doing is trying to satisfy the demands of consumers. You're trying to create a product, a service that people are willing to pay for. You're passionate about it. And you do a whole bunch of things that are really helpful for the economy. You employ people um, in addition to providing these goods and services that people are willing to voluntarily exchange for. So you have a really important role within the society as an entrepreneur. So those entrepreneurs exist in Africa today, and we'll talk about what they tend to look like. But I think you also in Africa today need social entrepreneurs. These are the people who are interested in promoting business, business-based approaches to, to basically solving social problems. This group is essential in Africa today because so many governments lack capacity to provide basic, basic social services. Social entrepreneurs are figuring out ways to get clean water to people in rural areas. They're figuring out ways to educate the poor in slums. They're figuring out ways to get medical care to people who are living in places far from hospitals. So they're a really important component, I think, of providing, a society, providing the services that people need to be effective traditional entrepreneurs. If you're not healthy, if you don't have clean water, if you don't have electricity, for example, it's going to be very difficult to have a, a vigorous group or a robust group of traditional entrepreneurs. So social entrepreneurs are playing a really important role in Africa today. But you also need policy entrepreneurs. You need people within the government who are willing to say, we need to make changes to our legal environment, we need to make changes to the regulatory environment to make room for this first group. This first group is going to drive sustainable growth in Africa, just like they drive sustainable economic growth in the US, just like they've driven sustainable economic growth in the US for the past 225 years. We absolutely need traditional entrepreneurs, small, medium, large size in Africa. They need to have a particular scope of freedom in which to work. They need to have a stable regulatory and legal environment in which to work. And they need to have some social services so that they're healthy, their kids are healthy, they have some infrastructure, they can get goods and services to market. Um, when I see effective development in Africa, when I see programs that are working, what I see is these three different groups working together. Policy entrepreneurs creating opportunities for traditional entrepreneurs to do some business, and the traditional entrepreneurs are usually supported some way, shape, or form by the social entrepreneurs. So when I think about what's needed in Africa, I think about a three-legged stool a stool that has these three different kinds of entrepreneurs working together. And so what's the real challenge of development in Africa today as I see it? And you may disagree with me. I see the real challenge as being creating incentives for these three groups to work together more effectively, more broadly, in more environments. And it's actually quite a difficult challenge. We can talk about why. So. Um, I want to talk for just a moment about uh, the traditional entrepreneurs. Um, the pictures that I have on the screen are, are pictures of folks that I've met with. Uh, on, uh, the, on my, to my immediate um, left is Sam Pongo. Sam is an entrepreneur in Soweto, which is one of the townships outside of Johannesburg in South Africa. And what he did was um, recognize that kids going to school, going to the public schools in South Africa, oftentimes go without lunches. Their parents, for a variety of reasons related to apartheid and apartheid policies, get up really early, have to take transportation to get to their jobs. The kids are left at home. They may make lunch. They may not, may not make lunch. A lot of times they don't. Maybe their parents give them a couple of rand to go to school, but they'll use it sometimes just to buy candy or whatever is on the way. So he figured out if he made these sandwiches and took them directly to the school, if he made them at a low price, he could sell them to the school kids and do two things at once, right? He would be serving the kids, meeting their needs. They need a lunch. They're starving. I mean, you guys are all young, especially the guys in the room. You know, like, you're dying by 12 o'clock, right? You need something to eat. These are young kids. Um, so they need something to eat that's not just candy. So he's created this business where he literally trucks hundreds of sandwiches into primary schools in Soweto and sells them for just a couple of rand to the kids who are there, because there are no cafeterias. I guess that's probably an important point to mention. So he's a traditional entrepreneur. He's found a way to meet um, a, a demand, a consumer demand. He's serving a particular community. He's growing his business. He's trying to do more. He's trying to do better. But he faces a set of barriers to grow an even larger business. 
And some of the barriers that he faces are things like an inefficient local bureaucracy that makes it very difficult for him to be licensed. Um, there's a lot of crime in South Africa. He's been attacked when he's been trying to deliver his, his sandwiches in the morning um, by armed robbers. Uh, there's a lot of carjacking in South Africa. It's just a very dangerous place to be, to be operating. And so for him, costs of crime are a significant issue. The other picture further away from me is a picture of a private school in the slums of Nairobi called Kibera. Uh, this school was started by a private entrepreneur, a woman who recognized that kids who are, who are slum dwellers um, have very limited educational opportunities. They can go into the public schools in Kenya, but the public schools tend to, be, tend to have very large class sizes. Teachers sometimes show up, sometimes teachers don't show up. Uh, kids are crowded in, in these large classrooms. They may have books, they may not have books. So amazingly, there's a very, a very dynamic, diverse um, market in slums in both Nigeria and in Kenya and other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, providing public schooling, providing private schooling for a fee to kids living in slums. Now their parents have to pay for the schooling, and, and if, if it was the case that the poor couldn't save, you might ask, how do they do it? Well, the answer is the poor do save. It's a complete fallacy to think that the poor in sub-Saharan Africa do not save. They are masterful savers. They have to be, because there is no other social security net for them other than what they can put aside. And even if they're only putting aside a tiny bit each week, they are putting, they are putting money aside each and every week to do things like send their kids to private school, because parents know the kids are going to get a better education in this environment than they are in the large public schools, even if the large public schools are free. So parents are voluntarily choosing a service offered by an entrepreneur who's filling a need that, that's really a pressing need in these communities. Um, there are entrepreneurs like this all over sub-Saharan Africa. You may have a vision of sub-Saharan Africa as a place where people are kind of helpless and hopeless. Absolutely not true. People are neither helpless nor hopeless but they do need some additional assistance in creating opportunities for them to be more entrepreneurial and to help their communities. Um, not only are there small-scale entrepreneurs, though, the sort of people like Sam Pongo, there are, uh, we can see examples of large multinational corporations behaving kind of entrepreneurially in Africa. And one example that I'll talk about very quickly is the example of the Monsanto Corporation. Um, which operates around the world, obviously a large multinational corporation doing um, uh, research and, and providing products, in, uh, agricultural input products, mostly to commercial farmers. This means the big, the big scale guys, the people like who, who are running, maybe do you grow wheat in Colorado? So people who are growing big wheat farms would be buying their wheat seeds from Monsanto probably. Um, but Monsanto also has an office in, sub in South Africa. They've been there for years because South Africa has a, a thriving commercial agriculture sector. But because of apartheid, South Africa also has thousands upon thousands of poor smallholder farmers living on very marginal land that they were pushed onto by the old apartheid government. And these folks live very difficult lives. They don't make a lot of money, as you can see from the slide. Um, they're quite poor. Uh, they don't really have enough funds to buy very high-quality agricultural inputs to break their cycle of dependency, their cycle of malnutrition, their cycle of hunger. What Monsanto did several years ago was create a set of smallholder uh, teams, and the smallholder teams are focused on helping subsistence farmers. Um, so what the smallholder team did was go out and literally talk to smallholder farmers poor black farmers in rural South Africa and ask them what they need, what sort of products would be good to help them do more and do better. And what the farmers said is, look, what we need is better quality seeds, we do need some fertilizer, um, and we need to really reduce our costs of, doing, uh, of farming because it's costly for us to run tractors, we've got to buy the diesel fuel, it's costly for us to do weeding, it means wives are out in the fields all day long weeding when they could be doing other things. So Monsanto came up with a product, uh, and here's a picture of the product, it's called a combi pack, uh, and this product was specifically designed for small-scale farmers in South Africa. It's a combination pack, that's what combi pack means, of hybrid seed, hybrid maize seed. Maize is, maize is a staple crop in South Africa, it's what most poor people are eating every single day in one, one variety or another. Uh, so Monsanto created this product, which is a package of hybrid maize seed, 
along with some herbicide to kill, to kill weeds, along with pictogram instructions about how to plant the seeds, along with, and these instructions told farmers, how do you plant the seeds? You do it by using something called conservation tillage or no tillage. Don't plow the land. Instead, put a cut in your land, put the seeds in, leave the organic material, most of the weeds that are there, leave them there, and over time, the nutrients from those plants that are there will go back into the soil. Over time, you'll improve your soil. So Monsanto was trying to do a couple of things. It was certainly trying to create a new batch of customers. But at the same time that it was trying to create a new batch of customers, it was trying to provide these customers with a product that would lead to higher crop yields for them. When farmers have higher crop yields, they and their families are less likely to be hungry, face food insecurity. When they have higher crop yields, they're more likely to have a surplus to sell at market. When they have a surplus to sell at market, they can do things like send their kids to school or buy new clothes for their kids. Um, this guy, uh, Mr. Andebele from the Mlondozi Farmers Association, uh, um, when I met with him, I met with all the Mlondozi Farmers Association folks, or, or many of the farmers there, um, and it, he was just delighted. I mean, you could tell that for him, this product had really uh, made an enormous difference in his life and in the life of his family, because each, each harvest, he was now growing twice as much as he had been growing before, which meant he was able to feed all of his children, he was able to provide for his grandchildren, and he was able to sell a little bit at local markets, which meant he was able to do things like buy materials that his family needed, whether that was clothing or pay for school fees. So he was really happy with that product. But it's an example of a multinational corporation doing something you may not think they would ever do. Why, why would a multinational corporation serve poor customers in sub-Saharan Africa? It's because they think that group might potentially be a customer base. It's also because it's good for them, right? It's good PR to have, to have folks knowing that Monsanto is doing stuff like that. But recognize that it's, it's a joint outcome. It's both um, good for the farmers. Farmers weren't forced to buy this. It's good for the company, creates a new base of customers over time. Also helps these farmers, uh, when they're able to grow a surplus and they're able to put a little bit of money aside, save up to access more land to switch from being subsistence farmers to commercial farmers. And Mr. Um, Ndebele is an example of someone who was able to graduate from being a subsistence farmer as a result of using this product. He was able to graduate from being a subsistence farmer to being more of a traditional commercial farmer. In other words, he was using more land, planting more crop, growing more crop, selling more at market. Um, some of the benefits for farmers, uh, in addition to just having uh, products to take and sell at market, were this product actually reduced labor costs, and this is especially important for women in Africa. Women do most of the agricultural work in sub-Saharan Africa, especially the smallholder work. And so a woman like Queen Thongo, who's in the top picture, if she was a traditional farmer, if she was only using um, the sorts of agricultural inputs that existed before the Monsanto product, she'd spend hours, hours of each of her days out in the field pulling weeds, tending the crop when it was harvest season out, uh, supervising people, getting the corn in. With this product, one of the great benefits of it is that you don't have to plow and you don't really have to worry about the weeds because you want the weeds to disintegrate back into the soil. This is like an empower, it's like an empowerment tool for women in sub-Saharan Africa. So um, Mrs. Thongo, instead of having to spend hours each day in the field, could actually do what she was doing when I met her, which was sewing, for, sewing clothes to sell at market. So the product, in a way, created some additional space for entrepreneurship. Um, it was a side benefit. It wasn't really what Monsanto necessarily intended from the product, but it's a terrific, it's a terrific um, additional benefit of, of a product like this. Uh, the woman at the bottom is, remember Mr. Ndebele on the previous page? This is his wife. And when I asked him what was the best thing about the combi packs, he literally said, the best thing is that now my wife is not in the field so much, which means she can take care of me. So, so all sorts of additional spillover benefits, uh, including Mr. Ndebele feeling happier that his wife was there to rub his feet at the end of the day. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, so what kind of a difference does it make overall? Well, um, there are still millions of people in South Africa who are food insecure, who are hungry. And this is a product that raises yields enough 
but it addresses some of those concerns. And I've talked about the other benefits of it providing extra income for folks, helping women, helping older farmers. A lot of the young folks in South Africa migrate to cities, and who's left to do the farming? It's the older men, it's the older women. If this is a product that reduces their labor time, it's a benefit for them. There are also some environmental benefits and then it creates this space for entrepreneurship. So as important as the small and medium-sized entrepreneurs are in Africa, so too the big-scale companies, the major multinational companies, when they focus on serving this market, when they're entrepreneurial about thinking how to serve the market, they can really make an important difference in people's lives. Um, now I'm going to switch, switch tacks for a minute and tell you a little bit about some work I've done in Rwanda. Um, you'll know that Rwanda suffered a terrible genocide 15 years ago in 1994. And imagine being in a country after a genocide, uh, a, a, a somewhat remote country like Rwanda. It's a landlocked country. It's got all the things going against it that uh, some development economists say will make it impossible for it to thrive. It's landlocked. It's mountainous. It's surrounded by problematic neighbors. It's a poor country. It's got a history of conflict. Everything going against this country. In the post-genocide um, period, so the late 1990s, the government decided, the government basically, it was a crisis, right? This is a crisis. Uh, but the government decided that it really needed to focus on growing the economy, really try to identify some products in which it would have an advantage, identify markets, and get Rwandan products out to market. Um, what the government focus, ended up focusing on, along with entrepreneurs, along with NGOs, was the specialty coffee industry. So I'm going to tell you for the next couple of minutes about the growth of the specialty coffee industry in Rwanda and some of the benefits that have come as a result of the rise of that industry. And some of the benefits are economic, but some of the benefits are kind of amazing social benefits, like people working together who were former enemies. So a little bit of informal reconciliation. Um, during the genocide, uh, the best estimates say 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. And they weren't killed by armies mostly. They were killed by their neighbors. Rwanda is the most densely populated country in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a small country. People live right next door to each other. They know each other. They're intermixed. Hutus live next to Tutsis. Hutus have married Tutsis. It's a very, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, not only were 800,000 people dead, millions of people were displaced. Some were in prison. They were accused of having committed genocide. Millions had left the country. They had fled to Uganda or Tanzania or Congo. Uh, so you had, a, you had a, a society in which before the genocide there had been about 8 million people. After the genocide, literally millions of people are gone. Maybe, maybe 3 to 4 million people have either been killed or displaced in the country. And not surprisingly, you have a lot of infrastructure damage. Uh, so what do you have in 1994? An economy that, co that contracts by half. It's an economic, a personal, a social, in all ways, a tremendous disaster. Um, but the government had to do something, right? It's 1994. You've got a bunch of orphans. You've got a bunch of people who've been injured. You've got a lot of needs. Infrastructure needs to be rebuilt. You've got to take care of people. How are you going to get the money to do that? Well, one way you can get the money is to rely on aid. And Rwanda has gotten a lot of traditional foreign aid over the past 15 years. But the government said, we can't just rely on aid. We've got to figure out a way to grow our economy. What can we do? So what they did was really interesting um, to someone like me especially. They liberalized part of the economy. What did this mean? It meant they actually repealed laws that had been in place under the previous government and under the old colonial government. And these old laws said people, even the very poorest people, had to plant up to one quarter of their land with coffee. They were required by law to plant coffee. It's a good coffee growing country. And then once they planted the coffee and harvested it, they were required to accept a price set by the government every year. The government always set the price for the coffee below the world market price. And it would then sell the coffee to buyers outside of Rwanda at a higher price. And what was done with the difference? They might sell it at 80 cents a pound, or they might buy it at 80 cents a pound. They might sell the coffee for a dollar a pound. What happened to that extra 20 cents? Did it go back to the farmers? 
It did not go back to the farmers. The government would say, we're going to use it for agricultural extension services, we're going to support our farmers, but really the money was used to support the government in the capital city and elites in the capital city. Um, so farmers for de literally decades had been, poor farmers had been subsidizing more educated elite folks living in the capital city in Kigali. After the genocide, the government said, let's get rid of that legal requirement to grow coffee. And by the way, you don't have to sell your coffee to us anymore. We'll let you contract with other people to sell coffee. What happens when competition is introduced into that situation? Well, now farmers have an incentive to grow better quality coffee. They had no incentives to grow good quality coffee under the old system because they were always going to get paid this low price. Once the market was freed up, once more people from outside came in, buyers from outside of Rwanda came in to buy Rwandan coffee, once people recognized, hey, you know, it's really curious, but Rwanda actually has heirloom coffee trees called bourbon coffee. It's a very special kind of coffee, and we might be willing to pay a higher price for it. Farmers decided that they had incentives to take good care of their coffee, to process their coffee carefully, because they realized they could benefit from those efforts. They would directly benefit because they'd, they'd sell the coffee for a higher price. Um, this has all been tremendously um, important in Rwanda. Uh, in case you don't, I, I think this is a group that probably knows a lot about specialty coffee, actually. Um, when I came in yesterday, I noticed a bunch of coffee shops. This morning, I had great coffee in Denver. There are coffee shops all over the place. Uh, so we are consumers in this city, around the United States. We are the con main consumers of specialty coffee, high-quality, carefully produced, carefully nurtured coffee that sells for more than commodity-grade coffee. It also tends to sell for higher prices than fair trade coffee. Rwanda has focused on building a specialty coffee industry by supporting coffee farmers, in part by creating new incentives for these farmers to really um, take good care of their coffee trees, and that's a coffee tree with some ripe beans on it, so that they can sell their products to us. Right? We're, we're, the end, we're the people who are benefiting from their efforts. There are some middlemen along the way. But the idea is connect the Rwandans to the consumers in the developed world, and that'll be good for everybody involved. Um, specialty coffee, it's a small part of the coffee market, but it is growing. Uh, and one of the cool things about the specialty coffee industry, I don't know if anyone's involved in the industry here, is that the industry takes a lot of pride in being involved with producers. And so if you go, say, into a Whole Foods store and you look at their Allegro coffee, you'll see that uh, they're very, they'll tell you stories about the producers they work with. Similar, similarly with Starbucks, Starbucks will tell you sometimes about the producers with whom they're working, um, especially really high-end importers like Intelligentsia Coffee. Um, make it, an, make it a, a real goal of theirs to develop long-lasting relationships with producers on the ground in Africa and other parts of the world. This then leads to a kind of technology transfer. Uh, I should say Rwanda is not a coffee culture. People drink tea in Rwanda. So, for example, they don't really know what a great cup of coffee is supposed to taste like. By working with importers in the United States, they figure out what is it that consumers in the US and Europe want, what are we willing to pay $12 or $15 a pound for, and those skills are transferred to farmers in Rwanda who learn how to carefully wash their coffee, how to roast their coffee if they're roasting it there. Um, so that's been a nice relationship. So, so I want to say that Rwanda seems to me to be a great example of these three different entrepreneurs working together. There had to be policy entrepreneurs in Rwanda who repealed the laws that created disincentives for farmers to produce good quality coffee. There had to be policy entrepreneurs who freed up the market. There had to be policy entrepreneurs who were willing to break the old government monopoly and allow competition in that market, which was really good for the farmers in Rwanda who are now making a lot more money for their, for their coffee than they were even into the year 2000. In addition to that, there have been some social entrepreneurs who've been, who've really played a key role in Rwanda teaching people in Rwanda how to really improve the quality control processes in terms of growing coffee, how to help Rwandans come together, form cooperatives, benefit from economies of scale, spread risks across large numbers of people, create effective businesses. NGOs have played a really important role there. Um, there's been some, uh, also a degree to which the, the whole process has benefited from foreign aid. In this case, it was a relatively small aid project 
uh, you know, maybe $40 million as opposed to multi-billions of dollars that some aid projects um, involve. Relatively small aid project involving USAID, a uh, little bit of European Union money as well, that's helped uh, communities build washing stations so that they can, process, they can wash their coffee very quickly. When you wash coffee beans quickly, you have better quality coffee. And, and the results in Rwanda really have been quite, quite astounding. Um, Typically, cooperatives that have formed are earning at least at least doubled their income. You have over 500,000 families in Rwanda that have seen their incomes double as a result of being members of, or growing specialty coffee over the last six to seven years. And in a country where the um, per capita GDP is about $250, changing that to $500 can really make a tremendous impact. It means you can send more kids to school, you can pay more school fees, you can buy medicines. Um, so these higher coffee prices have really paid tremendous dividends. What you see here is a picture of a new school that was built by one cooperative in Giseni in northwest uh, corner of Rwanda. The Copath Cooperative, when they got when they sell their coffee, they sell it at a they sell it at a profit. What do they do with their profits? Cooperatives can do different things. This cooperative decided it was time to start building some new schools. The other I should I should never have taken this picture because what you can't see in this picture is what the old school looked like. The old school had literally branches for the roof. This school has a corrugated metal roof. The old school had tiny little windows, so air wasn't really circulating through it. This school has a cement floor. The school right next to it had a dirt, a mud floor. Um, in so many, this school had a big blackboard. In so many ways, the school is a more pleasant environment for the students who are there than the old school. And that was made possible as a result of this particular cooperative succeeding in the worldwide marketplace supported by social entrepreneurs, enabled by policy entrepreneurs. The other cool thing about the Rwanda story, though, is, is this. This is the coolest part for me. Um, and, and I can't quite see what my time is. Uh, by bringing people together to work in cooperatives, by changing the legal environment, by changing the regulatory environment to give people incentives to work together, to grow better quality coffee, to share risks, to spread risks, to share costs, to benefit from economies of scale, Hutus and Tutsis have been working together. They've been working together now for a number of years in coffee washing stations, at coffee cooperatives. Last summer, I went to Rwanda and did um, a survey with a, a graduate student in which we tried to capture whether we're seeing actual changes in terms of people's relationship or, or feelings about others as a result of engaging in this commercial activity. And we found some pretty strong, we had some pretty good results which are that people who are working together in these coffee cooperatives, they're definitely experiencing improvements in their economic well-being, but they're also reporting in improvements in terms of how they perceive the other group. If they were a Hutu, how they perceive Tutsis. If they were a Tutsi, how they perceive Hutus. And there are changes in the positive direction. So people who are working together are realizing that they share goals with the other group. They're more willing to work with the other group cooperatively. They're a little less prejudiced. And that means they're more likely, they're less likely in the future maybe to engage in violent actions. Rwanda suffered from cyclical violence over the course of the past 40 years. Maybe one of the unintended consequences of liberalizing the economy and creating some room for entrepreneurship is also some, some reconciliation. Bring people together in a depoliticized environment and they find that they actually share some goals. And that's a, that's a really good thing. The last thing I want to talk about kind of quickly is um, another example of the three kinds of entrepreneurs working together. And I love talking about this story because th it's absolutely true that Namibia is my favorite country in, in Africa. It's Mark's favorite country as well. It's, it's a stunningly beautiful place, um, really just amazing country, very lightly populated. It had been ruled by South Africa until 1990, so suffered from many of the same apartheid style laws and regulations that South Africa had suffered from, which means that the black population in Namibia had been truly disadvantaged, had been really pushed off into uh, difficult, difficult rural areas to live. Um, most of the people living in rural areas are just herders. They have some cattle or some goats. They don't make very much money, and they don't have very many economic opportunities. But what happened in 1990 
is that the government changed. Uh, the South Africans had to leave and a new government took over, a new independent government run by, run by Namibians. And it's kind, of, it, it's kind of like a crisis point. In Rwanda, you had a crisis of a genocide and the government had to respond to the genocide. In Namibia, you have an opportunity, a political transition that created some room, I'm gonna, I would argue, for policy entrepreneurship. And one of the great policy, um, one of the great examples of policy entrepreneurship in Namibia is that the government devolved the rights from itself to local people to manage the wildlife. I want you to think about that for a second because think about what that would mean in the United States. It would mean national parks or in areas where there's wildlife, your town, your community would be responsible for managing the wildlife rather than the state government or the national government. It's a kind of a radical approach to dealing with natural resources. The good news is, in a place like Namibia, it's been a, it's been a spectacular success. A change to the legal environment that empowers local people to control their resources, even if they don't have PhDs in, uh, biology, in fish biology or wildlife management, is still leading to really, really good outcomes. Um, the government, after it enacted this policy to devolve legal rights down to local communities, had some help, again from aid efforts, again from local NGOs, to help the communities figure out, what are we going to do? We've got these rights now to, to wildlife, and Namibia has spectacular wildlife. Wildlife is something that attracts people like us. We want to go to Namibia, many of us. We want to see the wildlife. We're going to bring our tourist dollars. It's a business opportunity for local communities if they're able to effectively manage the wildlife. They have some entrepreneurial opportunities to benefit from having that wildlife there. So the change in the legal environment did a really important thing, similar to what happened in Rwanda. It shifted incentives. Rather than people having incentives to poach wild animals, which is what they were doing in Namibia before this change, local people now have incentives to conserve the wildlife, take care of it, manage it more effectively, because if they can do that, they have the potential to benefit directly from wildlife tourism, ecotourism, from Americans, Japanese, wealthier, affluent people going to visit and seeing what it's like in Namibia. Um, but if you're going to attract people from the US and Europe to come as visitors, you have to be able to build tourist lodges. You have to be able to take care of them, provide amenities. Uh, you have to be able to run a business because it's a big business. Tourism is an enormous business. So you need some skills. NGOs were absolutely essential in providing local Namibians with the skills they need to build first class, first world tourist facilities within the country. And that's resulted in some amazing empowerment for local people in Namibia. Uh, in terms of developing human capital, in terms of creating jobs, uh, in terms of giving people opportunities to think entrepreneurially in different ways. The goals for this program were really fourfold. The, the goals were conserve the wildlife and the natural resources, but also promote rural economic development, help local people guilt build governance institutions. This is a really important thing to think about. Um, there is a tremendous problem in sub-Saharan Africa with faulty rule of law. Uh, the, the, there's just not a really effective rule of law in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe that's tied to some of the following kinds of problems. Um, when colonial governments came in, they oftentimes displaced traditional leaders. The old system for ruling was pushed aside and replaced, uh, in some cases, by what the, what the colonists wanted to do or by local chiefs picked by colonists. In a country like Namibia, the South Africans had really um, destroyed the traditional, uh, traditional authority systems. But these communities get together, they form something called a conservancy. The conservancy has to create a constitution. It's got to figure out management plans to deal with its wildlife. Um, and the, the, the conservancy has to uh, enter into contracts with other people who are either going to build lodges or who are going to engage in hunting. That whole, that whole process of writing a constitution, managing businesses, is really like democracy building at a micro level. And it teaches people to be accountable at a local level for what they're doing. And that's been really effective. I think of it in a way as a kind of Jeffersonian experiment or a Tocquevillian experiment that's taking place in Namibia. And so far, it's been, it's been really successful. Um, so results today in Namibia, and, and after this, we'll, I'll just tie it up and we'll stop. I'm going to show you a variety of slides that show you some of the benefits and the results to date. Uh, the first, maybe the first thing that most Americans would be concerned about is this has been really good for the environment. 
As a result of devolving these rights down to the local level, there are more, there's more wildlife in Namibia than there was um, 12 years ago when this program was started. There's more of everything. There's more elephant, more kudu, more hartebeest, more predators, more lions. It's, it's a healthier, more vibrant economy and ecosystem. There are healthier biomes in Namibia today as a result of this legal change than there were before. Um, conservancies are routinely entering into joint ventures with commercial companies. These joint ventures typically involve a company that has experience building a tourist lodge on conservancy lands. Uh, and and as, once, they build the, once they build the lodge, the private company is required to contractually train local people, employ local people whenever possible. So local people are benefiting by having jobs. And at the end of the contract period, typically the local conservancy will own the lodge outright. So really what the tourist company is doing is saying, we'll build this lodge and we'll run it for 20 years and we'll get some of the profits. But at the end of the time, you, the conservancy, are going to have this lodge as something that you own and we're going to have trained you so that you can take over the running and the management of this uh, this um, facility yourselves. And this is really sort of best practices in the world today. Namibia is at the forefront of best practices in terms of partnering with local communities, uh, bringing the private sector in, developing partnerships that are really designed to empower these rural communities. Um, and as a result of this, people are, are making more money, which is important as well. So I wanted to show you first um, the growth of the conservancy movement in Rwanda, excuse me, in Namibia. Uh, the legislation allowing for the creation of conservancies came into force in 1996. So in 1996, there were no conservancies, and the government owned all the wildlife. Um, so it took a little bit of time for conservancy movement to get started, but by 1998, there were just a few conservancies. Today, there are, there are 50 conservancies that have been formed, 50 different groups of rural people in Namibia, many of whom have not gone to high school, have gotten together, drafted constitutions, drafted game management plans, entered into contracts with commercial partners to create a more viable rural economy for themselves. I think that's really a tremendously positive development in Namibia. Um, currently, about approximately 10% of the population uh, are conservancy members. It's a small population, about 2 million people, just over 200,000 people are involved in conservancies today. Um, and here's the sort of money that conservancies are generating. Uh, this is in Namibian dollars, and depending upon the exchange rate, it might be might today be seven or eight Namibian dollars to one U.S. dollar. So you can see back in the mid-1990s, there was no income being generated because there were no conservancies. Over time, what we're seeing is a really dramatic rise in terms of economic benefits to conservancies that are coming from uh, profits that these tourist lodges are generating. Some conservancies have trophy hunting, and you pay a fee when you go trophy hunting. Um, in addition, conservancies can sell animals. They can sell animals to game parks in other parts of the world or to zoos in other parts of the world. Uh, conservancies also can use some of the meat, that some of the animals, for their own use. They can hunt animals themselves, and that's a benefit to them. They have a steadier supply of meat. Uh, so tremendous growth and benefits over time here. I just mentioned some of the things that conservancies are doing. And you can see by far the most important segment of that benefit is entering into these contractual agreements with um, tourist companies to build lodges to bring people into Namibia to visit. Uh, here's just some pictures of a couple of the lodges that, that have been built in Namibia. Um, this one down here is uh, called Doranawas. It's a very, a very lovely, small size, upscale, Tourist Lodge in Namibia, and you can sit outside and watch the game as they come in in the afternoon or as they're out in the morning. The other one in the top corner is a larger lodge. It serves more people. It's in Teufelfontein Conservancy, um, very small conservancy, but brings in a lot of money for the Teufelfontein Conservancy, provides a lot of jobs, provides a lot of skills training for local folks. And that's all good because that's all transferable, right? If you learn bookkeeping, you can be a bookkeeper anywhere. You don't have to stay at the tourist lodge. You can go out and work for someone else in the local community, and now you've got a valuable skill. So you can see that um, all the way back in 2006, there were loads of jobs that had been created as a result of this legal, as a result of this change in the legal environment. And for every full-time job that's created in Namibia, the person holding that job can support five people. 
So it's terrific that this has happened, um, and the part-time jobs are useful also. But I want to show you what's happened in terms of the in terms of the environment, because you know we sort of care about the critters. And this is a graph from the northwest portion of uh, showing you changes in the pop animal populations in the northwest corner of Namibia in the Kunene region. And you can see that um, overall, in every category, numbers of wildlife have gone up, in some cases, really quite dramatically. Uh, maybe there are a few too many buffalo, actually. That could probably be a problem. And boy, are they creepy-looking critters when you're up close to them. Um, but it's good, right, because people want to see stuff like that. This is, these are figures from the, the, a different part of the uh, country, in the eastern part of the country, in the Nainai region, which is where the, the Bushmen live. And here I think you can see also that there's been quite substantial improvements in terms of numbers of, of wildlife that are in this region. And, and that wildlife um, is really a tremendous uh, benefit, both for the local people, um, but also for folks like us who want to want to know that there's a place in the world where these animals are are, well, are taken care of, where they're going to be, where they're going to have a chance to thrive. Um, okay, so now I'm going to tie it up, and I hope we have time for questions. Um, what I've done, I hope, is just share some of my experiences with you. Share some some of my insights from working on the ground, doing field work for the last several years. Uh, and, and what I see when I go to Africa is not to be a little bit repetitive, not that it's at all a hopeless or a helpless place. It's a place where entrepreneurship thrives. There are unbelievably creative entrepreneurial people everywhere. You see them in informal markets. You see them in cities working hard, trying to figure out how to make a living. You see them in rural areas trying to figure out how to grow enough to get to market to take care of their families. These entrepreneurs are really the folks that, that William Easterly, in his work, calls the searchers. They're searching for solutions. They're searching for solutions to how, to how they take care of their family, and they're doing that, and they're searching for ways to make consumers happy. And there are consumers in Africa. People need a bunch of stuff. Entrepreneurs can meet those needs on the ground. Um, these people are essential for economic growth. We have to have a strong class of entrepreneurs running small, medium, large-sized businesses because they're providing most of the jobs in a society. Unemployment is a huge problem in sub-Saharan Africa. One of the most important ways to deal with problems of unemployment of young guys and young girls who don't have anything to do is to have more entrepreneurs. When people don't have things to do, young people don't have, don't have opportunities we tend to see problems like uh, social unrest, and we may even be able to tie that to problems related to terrorism. So for a whole variety of reasons, security reasons, just because it's morally appropriate, we should be encouraging, I think, the development of broader, deeper entrepreneurship in Africa. But I think to get that broader, deeper entrepreneurship, you're going to need the policy entrepreneurs, the people in government who are willing to make changes to the legal structure, the legal code, the regulatory environment. They're essential as well. They made the changes in Rwanda. They made the changes in Namibia. And there have been good results that's followed. But you also need these social entrepreneurs, the people who are working in a nonprofit kind of environment, trying to provide people on the ground with services or skills they need to be a part of the worldwide economy, to connect to us or to connect to folks elsewhere. Um, because that's what Namibia did, right? The people in Namibia are connecting to us, the consumers of ecotourism. The people in Rwanda are connecting to us. They're selling their coffee to us um, in different outlets throughout the United States. Having said all that, though, it's not the case that you don't need sound institutions. The institutional economists have taught us a very important lesson, which is that you don't get this kind of growth unless you have environments in which there is a rule of law, in which governments are accountable, relatively transparent, um, in which there are relatively secure rights to property. This is an, a tremendous issue in Rwanda. And, and when you have those sorts of things, you tend to have higher levels of trust, also an important component of a thriving commercial society. So those institutions are going to um, change as a result of, I would argue, push it, um, pressures from these other kinds of, uh, in, from the entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs want the sound institutions. They're going to be demanding institutional change all the time. The question is, how do you incentivize the people in government to supply much-needed institutional change to create some scope for entrepreneurship. So if, as I look at Africa, as I look at Sub-Saharan Africa, I see a lot to be encouraged about. There's been a lot of good growth over the past seven, eight years. 
The current financial crisis has had a dampening effect in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, like it's had in other places. But it's a tremendously exciting place to be doing work. And it's a place where I think if there were just a little bit more entrepreneurship, a little bit more freedom for people to be creative, to really make strong use of their creative talents, we would see Africa grow. Thank you so much. Okay, so, oh, um, and here's my email if anyone wants to send a question, uh, email, please feel free. Um, I should probably mention that I blog at uh, socialenterprising backslash indigoafrica.org, uh, so you can see what we have to write there. Alex is going to tell me if I have any time or if I've gone over my time. I'd be really happy to take questions. Yes, sir. Microfinance. Yeah, I could. Yep, yeah, you got to come up to get in the line. What role do you see microfinance playing in the development of Africa? So, um, microfinance is uh, obviously an important part of the equation in helping the people who are micro entrepreneurs, small entrepreneurs, um, but to, to get access to credit. Uh, I should say, though, that microcredit penetration rates in Africa are very low. Usually, no more than two percent in any country, in any given country, and where you'll find microcredit is typically in urban areas. So, so there are a lot of challenges I think that are faced by microcredit providers in sub-Saharan Africa today. Expanding microcredit services to rural areas, providing things like micro crop insurance, providing things like micro mortgages for some companies. There's a lot of entrepreneurial opportunities in microcredit itself. It's definitely a help to the small um, entrepreneurs who are doing work in, in Africa. Is it a solution to poverty? Is it a panacea or a silver bullet? It's not. Um, it's an important component, a necessary but maybe not a sufficient um, strategy for overcoming and really alleviating poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. But boy, the microcredit people do some, some really good work. Yes, sir. I uh, saw recently that President Kagame of Rwanda has uh, just tried to uh, open up some legislation and put some funds towards bringing uh, broadband networks into uh, Kigali. And uh, I was wondering if you saw, like the, the enterprise I've been talking about seemed to be a lot of more traditional agriculture. Uh -huh. And if you see more high-tech things as being a, maybe a more of a sustainable thing or if it's going to take more infrastructure. Well, the, that's a really good question. The infrastructure is a major impediment to growing, say, the manufacturing sector in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, energy, for example, is it's very difficult. There's just not enough energy capacity. Um, but Rwanda is, is an interesting case, although I focused on the growth of the specialty coffee industry, which looks like a traditional African industry commodity, uh, exporting commodities. Rwanda is consciously trying to diversify their economy. Um, we, could, we could be worried maybe about the government picking winners and picking losers, but, but the Rwandan government has, made a very, has placed a very strong emphasis on growing an ICT industry within country. It's a francophone country, so they think that they can compete in offering back office services to French-speaking European countries. So perhaps next time Alex's parents need to call the credit card company uh, from Arl, they'll actually be speaking with someone in Kigali because it's more cost-effective to have those services offered through Kigali. But you have to get those cables in. The cables are just coming to East Africa now. I think it'll be a tremendous boon. I think there's loads of entrepreneur, entrepreneurial opportunities associated with having that increased broadband access uh, throughout all of Africa. One of the great untold, you know, stories, one of the great stories from Africa over the last decade is the growth of the cell, is the cell phone revolution in Africa. When you go to Africa, you can be in uh, the remotest regions of rural Namibia, and the person you're talking to is going to have a cell phone. Um, they know that the cell phone technology is essential for them to keep in touch. They're keeping in touch with family members who are in the cities. They, if they have a medical emergency, they need to contact somebody. They're not close to hospitals. The growth of the cell phone industry in Africa has been just, just an amazing story of entrepreneurship in and of itself. And one of the, you know, one of the great additional uh, benefits of the growth of that industry are you're able to do things like send text messages to people who are, who are living with HIV AIDS to remind them that it's time to get for treatment, time to go to a clinic, 
Uh, you can send all sorts of information about agricultural markets by using texts. You can actually pay, um, uh, there's banking services available online for Africans. So it, it's been, it, it's, it's empowered and changed the whole way people do business in Africa. And so there are increasing numbers of businesses related to using that technology in a way that's just really phenomenal. In fact, one of the guys who became a billionaire um, creating cell phone, offering cell phone services in sub-Saharan Africa is named Mo Ibrahim. And he's taken some of his billions that he's earned and put it into a foundation that now awards a prize every other year to the uh, best African leader. It's called the Mo Ibrahim Prize. So he's actually decided one way to encourage good governance in Africa is to create a carrot, give a, the world's largest monetary prize to the, to the political leader in Africa who's done the best job of ruling justly and, and efficiently. Um, so that's another interesting benefit of, of the rise of that industry. Any other questions? Yes, sir? Uh, I was just a little curious and slightly alarmed. I, uh, I know that most uh, historians, sociologists, anthropologists, um, we know that the reason Africa is so impoverished is because they were denied the ability to manufacture and forced to cash crop. And through the forcing of cash cropping, these people were um, unable to sustain economic growth. They're unable to create uh, an economic community within their communities because they only have an export economy. Um, so colonial and neocolonial powers have put them in this position through cash cropping and through um, denying them the ability to manufacture. So I'm curious how you can justify still um, perpetuating the cycle of cash cropping through like coffee farmers and not allowing them to grow in other areas of their economy and while at the same time denying them, um, pretty much denying them the ability to have um, social programs that are affordable and work for them through this corporate takeover of the African state. Um, I have to say I'm extremely alarmed by some of the philosophy. Well, notice what the Rwandan government did. The Rwandan government didn't say you must grow coffee. The Rwandan government said you no longer need to sell coffee to us at an extortionary price. People who don't can go into the cities, they can go into Kigali, they can find other kinds of work. They don't have to grow coffee. What the government has done is liberalized the system and said, you don't have to support us anymore, the folks in government. If you want to, we will help you to participate in the development of a high-end product, niche product, that commands a lot of value on world markets, and you'll benefit from selling in that specialty niche market. So there's no... It's not, a, it's not a coercive system. It's a system in which coffee farmers, if they choose to, can participate. If they choose not to, they can do other things, and the government does have supports for them in other areas. The government does provide education to the, to the people who are living in rural areas. The government is focused on diversifying the economy. It would like people to go into ICT because it knows specifically that depending upon commodities is really not... Uh, a sustainable path to strong economic growth over time. So I actually, I know that the Kagame government um, is certainly criticized for some of its human rights issues, for maybe some constraints on freedom of the press. Uh, those are very well-documented concerns, but in terms of growing an economy where all members of society are going to benefit, not just Tutsis, Hutus benefit as well as Tutsis, the government, I think, has created a strategy that's trying to provide a great variety of opportunities for people to engage in economic, uh, different economic activities. Yes, sir? You had mentioned that the Rwanda government previously had been exploiting the coffee farmers. Under the new system, is there uh, some sort of taxation in place? And is the government better off now than they were before? And if so, is the general population benefiting from this? And if so, how? Um, so there is still an export tax on the sale of coffee in Rwanda. It's a 4% export tax, and that tax is uh, supposed to be used to support coffee farmers. The government will provide. Uh, recently had a program to provide um, new trees to coffee farmers, and, and they say they provide some ag extension services. Farmers on the ground are not really thrilled with, as you can imagine, they're not thrilled having to pay that export tax, and they don't feel like they get good value 
uh, from the Coffee Export Board. So, so that's an area of concern, and it's an area um, of concern that I know I've written about in the past, uh, whether that marketing agency needs to be there and needs to have uh, the reduced control that it still has over folks in Rwanda. Uh, the Rwandan government, with the help of the British uh, development agency, DFID, has really improved its tax collection services. And, and this could be both a good thing and, and perhaps maybe it's, you know, maybe we could have a debate about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but they're, they're certainly um, uh, doing a better job at collecting revenues. So in terms of is the government making more money, are they collecting more revenues? Yeah, they're collecting more revenues. The question is what are they doing with the revenues they collect and are they using it um, efficiently and effectively to provide services to people in country because there are a lot of things people need. It's still a very poor country. Um, and so are people better off on the ground? Well, the people who are in the specialty coffee industry, which is not all coffee farmers, um, the, but the farmers who are involved in growing specialty coffee are definitely seeing increases in their annual income because they can sell the coffee for more than they could, they can sell specialty coffee for more than fair trade coffee. Specialty coffee commands a higher price. They can sell specialty coffee for more than commodity grade coffee, which is the sort of coffee that goes into Maxwell House and Folgers. Um, so if they're able to grow commodity grade coffee, they benefit from being in that specialty market by having higher income. So you set, you definitely see improvements among that portion of the population. And, and what's, what to me is interesting about the Rwandan liberalization in the coffee sector is that the majority of the people who are farmers in Rwanda are Hutus. Hutus are the majority ethnic group in Rwanda still today. Tutsis who run the government are the minority group. In, in Rwanda, it's actually nobody encouraged you to, you are discouraged from talking about ethnicity anymore. Um, the society would like to kind of de-ethnicize. Uh, but notice what this particular liberalization did. It helped the losers, maybe more than it helped the victors. The Tutsis were the people who brought the genocide to a close. The Hutus were the people who perpetrated the genocide. The Hutus are the majority of the farmers. They have an opportunity, as well as the Tutsis, to benefit from these liberalizations. And, and that's a kind of unusual um, economic liberalization, a little bit different from many of the liberalizations in Eastern Europe, where political people who had a lot of political power tended to benefit from privatizations, uh, tended to benefit from changes in, uh, in economic changes in, in the local economies. And so, again, maybe the lesson to be learned from Rwanda is not that it's it's necessarily a perfect story, but it's a pretty darn good story. And it's a story that um, involves a broad-based liberalization designed to help people at the low end of the economic spectrum, to help the farmers. Not really to help the folks who are living in the capital city, but to help the people who are in rural areas to make a better income to support their families. Um, and I need Alex to tell me if we have any time or not. Okay, so if anyone else has a question, I'd be happy to entertain another question. If not, well, thank you all so very much for coming. I appreciate your attendance.